Hello and welcome to the Sins and Virtues podcast, covering everything from gratitude to gluttony and greed. I'm musician James Wilson, and in this podcast you'll hear from creative practitioners, finding out what motivates them and how the seven deadly sins and seven heavenly virtues have impacted their outlook as artists. In this series, which focuses on the virtue gratitude, you'll meet academic and broadcaster Professor Mona Siddiqui as she sits down with four artists to discuss what gratitude means to each of them. In this latest episode, Mona talks to Lizette Alton, a creative practitioner who works with words. As a disabled artist, Lizette uses her platform as a performer, writer and theatre maker to make the invisible visible. Her debut novel, The Secret of Haven Point, is forthcoming from Puffin. They discuss Lizette's first encounter with books, the stark realities of art as a career and coming to terms with being disabled. I'm delighted to be joined by Lisette Orton, who is a poet, writer and activist. Lisette, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Lisette, let's start with your early childhood, your formative years, what kind of family you grew up in. And what were the earliest influences that you remember on on yourself and and when you look back on your work? I didn't realise at the time that we probably didn't have that much cash because um, life was not orientated around that. So I suppose I didn't realise maybe it was lots of stomping through leaves going on holidays to caravans in Wales. And I remember my sister and I having a massive protest with posters around the inside of this tiny little caravan um, saying, we want to go to the fair. And then we'd written on one of the posters, the fair needs us instead of needs us. And we went to the fair. I don't think we spent any money, but we looked at the fair. Um, Yeah, outdoors. And one of the most important things was the library. And my mum and dad read to me every single night. Books were a massive part of my life. There was um, there's a photo of me, tiny, on a little orange chair, and I've got a book upside down, and I'm desperately trying to, to read it. And, yeah, the first time I got my library card and I realised that all these books were potentially mine was the best day ever. Oh, that's a lovely thought, actually. And I think we don't think of libraries in the same way now because books are so much more accessible. But really, you know, not that long ago, libraries were the only place you could really go and just sit there and nobody would ask you any questions and you could walk through and pick up books and and look through them. And it didn't matter whether you took any out or not. You were just there for the pure joy of, of those books. Do you remember feeling safe and loved as you were growing up? Yeah, very, very much so. Um, yeah, and a little sister who was um, five years younger, so kind of um, too little to be my friend, but I was too young to really look after her. So she was just a right pain in the bum for ages. And then, um, yeah, growing up, that changed and having that kind of little friend who obviously I would take the mick out of and just completely shove out the door if any of my other friends came round. But um yeah, she was my my little buddy and still is now. We're talking about gratitude in this podcast. And I just wonder whether at the time you were growing up or looking back at your childhood, did you feel then or do you feel now a sense of gratitude for what you had? I see that you began with we had very little cash, but you had parents and you were loved and you felt safe. When you think back to that, how, how does that make you feel? 
at the time, I just, it's horrible, isn't it? I just assumed that everybody had that because I did. And we didn't necessarily have the fancy stuff, but we had parents who came to every parent's evening who, um, when I wanted to play the cello, I don't know how they scraped together money for that, but I did play the cello. They, Looking back now, they sacrificed so much to give us what we had and the opportunities we had and um, like to take me to drama sessions and all that kind of stuff. It was just, um, yeah, that support. I'm really grateful for that now. I wasn't at the time. I just assumed that was the norm and that's what everyone got. But yeah, very much so. And were you drawn to creative arts at school? Yeah, my favourite story is when Anne Fine, an author, came to school, but I didn't know what an author was. So I loved books, adored books, but um, didn't know that that was like a job because my family didn't do arty jobs. They did like proper, proper jobs. I didn't even know like being arty was a job. I, I spent ages drawing drawing and writing books when I was little. I put ISBN numbers on them. I stapled them. I drew the little puffin symbol. And then Anne Fine came to school and I remember queuing up to get my book signed, which I thought was really weird. Like, why was some random woman scribbling in the front of my book? But that's what school said to do. So, okay then. And she said, oh, your name's really unusual. I think I'll write that down just in case I use that as a character. And I was like... A pardon what? That's really nice, isn't it? And then that was the point that I realised that this thing that was in my hand, that woman who was scribbling in it, she wrote it, she thought of it, but she didn't just sellotape it together. Somebody gave her some money and that was the moment that I went, blimey, you can do this stuff. That was a turning point for you in any way? Yeah, yeah, probably. It was, I realised it was real and not pretend, Um but I still, I still went to do subjects and things that would give me a proper job because I yeah. didn't think that someone like me could have a not proper job. What is it about the art world? I mean, in all its manifestations, that we still live with that, that, you know, not just it's not a proper job, but the sense of risk that one takes when one goes into the creative arts, that you may make it, you may not make it. You're not guaranteed a monthly salary, you're not guaranteed any security. Why is it that we still live in that kind of society where arts and creative arts and performance arts are filled with so much risk? Awful, isn't it? I mean, especially during the pandemic, what have we done? We've consumed art, be that Netflix or books or music, and we've had theatre streamed into the, our homes all those people behind that, we've needed them desperately. And yet for me, the biggest thing and still is now is cash. I don't know each month how much I'm going to bring home, if I'm going to bring any home. And I find myself taking on far too much work, which I'm so lucky that I'm in that privileged position. But because of the fear that maybe next month there won't be that that offer, and it still boils down to um, cash. <laughs> I need it to yeah, live. No, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, that following on from that, as, as I wonder whether the real issue is that as a society, it's not simply about jobs and careers. It's also that we don't really recognise 
I think, anyway, that we don't truly appreciate the power and purpose of art in all its forms. It's seen as a luxury. Yeah, I'd agree. And it's it's not. It's how we work out what's going in the world. It's how we make sense of the world. It's how we have joy. It's how we can find solidarity in people who are feeling the same things that we're feeling. It's cave art. It's essential. We've been doing it since the dawn of time. We, yeah, we desperately, desperately need it. And I also don't think we just need it. We just need to make sure that it's not the elite and the people who can afford, who, quite frankly, have been writing the same stories for a very long time. It's how we open up the doors, let the ladder down, how we allow other people who haven't historically had their voices heard to be part of making art and know it's, know it's for them. So you identify as a disabled artist. Can you tell us a little bit about how your disability influences your art and the creative process? Yeah, it's um, disabled is a powerful political word. Um, I became disabled exactly halfway through my life. Um, and so there is a definite before and after. Um, I use the term everywhere because I was deeply, deeply ashamed when I first became ill because I was no longer productive. I couldn't hang out with my friends, all these plans that I had to change the world and, and go off and travel. And now I was back at home in my parents' house having to be cared for. And um, I lost so much time, so much time because I was ashamed. And that was because I didn't hear on my radio disabled voices or neurodivergent voices. Um, when I was able finally to watch TV, I didn't see them there. Mm -hmm. I was just basically told, I suppose, by society, stay in that little room in the little house. Don't have ambitions, don't grow, because we don't, quite frankly, we don't want you. So if I can carve out a little path as disabled me, and then I can stick that in every title with no shame and absolute power and love, then that's what I'm going to do because then maybe other people can see it too like I needed to see it. So looking back at the time that you became disabled and you moved back to your parents' house, do you look back at that time with any sort of resentment or today are you just grateful for everything and the fact that these different points in your life, these different stages in your life has made you who you are today? I resent the fact, not that I am disabled, I resent the fact that it took so long to accept that and to find the right people who taught me how to be this new me. I am grateful, like um, I could quite frankly burst into tears, I'm grateful beyond everything for my parents and my sister. So... Um, my sister was living a vibrant, loud life with lots of friends and all of a sudden there was me who needed quiet all the time because noise hurt. She had to be quiet and she would dry my hair for me. My mum and dad changed the house around so I could be there and I could be safe. My dad would take Friday afternoons off work when I was well enough and he would bundle me into the car and we would just drive the countryside 
So I'd seen something. My mum would sit with me for hours. Just, they were incredible. Just, if I hadn't had that, I've got no clue what I would do or where I would be. I don't, I don't know whether I'd be here now, quite frankly. You used the word shame. What was it that you were ashamed about? Being unproductive when someone wanted to get in touch everyone I was I was 21 so everyone was finishing university and beginning it's that time of beginning of making a mess of getting it wrong of trying to live independently of travel of first jobs and I was back at home horizontal in a darkened room so I got invitations to weddings and things and I'd ignore them because I didn't have the vocabulary to say I'd love to be there, but I can't. I couldn't work out what was wrong with me and why I couldn't do that too. And yeah, really, really ashamed and not having the the words to articulate how I felt. And your art form is words. Tell us a little bit about what drew you to writing and poetry and the fact that your debut novel is coming out in... 2022. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, So I'd always loved words since sellotaping and writing things. And then I went off to uni and I went to Bretton Hall, which was Sculpture Park, an arts college. It was part of Leeds University, but um, we were there making and creating and I did devise performance. So make it up as you go along acting. Um, And when I became ill, all of a sudden that was stolen. I didn't have the body to be able to do that at that time. And I wasn't well enough to listen to the radio or do anything like that. So the only thing I had left was imagination. So I just started creating worlds in my head because that's somewhere I could go to. And it was a heck of a lot of time to fill. Um, And I could rerun bits. So without realising, I started this process where even now... I barely write on the page. For a writer, I do very little writing. All the editing and world building takes place in my head and I hold it and I fine tune it. And the only thing that I had left that was creative and I had the power to do was that. And then amazingly, once I started coming back out into the world again and was able to, there was a wonderful, amazing um, group called Writer's Block Northeast. James and Laura, eternally grateful. And um, I managed to get onto this course that they were running about writing a novel. And I realised that my idea was rubbish. I had no idea how to write a novel. Um, These worlds I'd built in my head were beautiful, but on the page they sucked. Um, But I learned so much. And then I started doing spoken word and I realised the power of words. And then these characters popped in my head because there wasn't children's books out there that were for disabled children having an adventure, being the stars, the heroes, not just the sidekick and definitely not getting magically fixed. So um, I started writing that book and then I got on a mentoring programme with Penguin and then blow me, they bought it. Wow, congratulations again. I mean, you used the word, the only thing I had was my imagination. I don't think anyone should ever underestimate the power of the imagination. I don't think we have enough of it in society. That's a problem. So that's that's a lovely journey. And when you say the power of words, again, as a society, do you think that we understand that language can change lives, that language is a direct impact on how you feel, whether it's loved or hated or a sense of belonging? 
And that because we use language so callously nowadays in many ways, that power of words now is almost confined to artists. And actually, all of us should be aware of the power of words. Yeah. I mean, I suppose we know it without knowing it in as much as sometimes you get to the end of a book and these characters who've been with you all that time and something happens and you have that (gasps) moment and then you're sobbing and all they are are black and white shapes on a page. It's nothing more than that. And yet we are having this visceral feeling and emotion. So I think everybody has the power to feel them in that way. I think people who are marginalised who don't have power understand the power of words even more they understand how they can be used against them but hopefully they can also understand how words can be taken and used for power because they're free (laughs) we we get to have them and use them and craft them um so i don't know unless you've had them used against you, whether you understand how powerful they can be, but we can all feel what words do. As you know, I came to this topic of gratitude through a project that was funded by a Christian philanthropist organisation called the Issaka Fund. And until that time, I always thought of gratitude as a virtue, as a person of faith. You know, gratitude is being grateful to God for your blessings But when I got the project, I started to problematize gratitude because gratitude can also be a burden. It can lead to feelings of indebtedness, um, of conflicted loyalties. And I wonder when you think about you being grateful today and writing about gratitude as well, whether it's through post-its or little sticker notes, that you see any problem with the expression of gratitude, but also whether gratitude has almost become a duty. Yeah, gratitude can really hold you back. Um, I don't have a problem in the expression of, I think it's lovely. I think being kind and saying thank you is one of the most powerful words that we have. Um, But there was a time for me where, because my parents had done so much for me, And they wanted so much for me that it was quite argumentative because I wanted to be this arty, creative person. I just didn't have the vocabulary coming from the family and the school and the life that I came from to be able to articulate exactly what that was and how it would work. And my parents, understandably, were quite scared about that because... How was I going to finance that? How was I going to live? How was I going to survive? So lots of the decisions that I made for quite some time were based about pleasing other people. Because they had given me so much, I needed to give something back in return. So I still struggle with that now. Like saying no, find out really hard. There's so many things because I feel that immense gratitude that sometimes it means I can't push away from that. And maybe, maybe sometimes giving has strings. Maybe if we remove the strings from giving, then we'd be 
more able to make decisions along our own paths. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just want to ask you a little bit about your writing, writing the missing in which you say it's about making the invisible visible. What do you mean by that? So um, I'm not entirely sure where this project came from. And it certainly wasn't meant to hang around for quite so long and in as many iterations and different ways of working as it has. But that's where the power of words comes in. Um, in the northeast, 25% of people are disabled and we don't take up that cultural space. And um, I write, I do stuff with words, I work with them in all their forms and all of a sudden it felt like I wanted to take up some of that space. And by taking up some of that space, I wanted to say, please come and take up this space too. So it's been essays, it's been films in two different iterations with another one to come. Um, yeah, it's trying to be kind and hopeful and powerful and say this is who we are, we are mighty. And our stories are brilliant. You've heard all the other ones a million times before. Come and listen to ours because they're mint. <laughs> Do you think as a society we're just simply still not aware of the impact that disability in all its forms has on people, but the fact that so many people of whatever kind of disability, mental or physical, are still not there in our cultural psyche? Yeah, it's a missing a massive missing and it's the only one that we might plop into at some point in time we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring um old age is definitely going to bring something to some of us it's it's part of our social fabric but when i was young it was it was literally segregation there was a special school so I did not meet anybody in my childhood formative years when you learn how to be with other people, when you are kind, when you have that chance to, to just realise that the world is made up of this fabric of amazing, awesome people in loads of different ways and colours and body types and all sorts. Just weren't there. Just were, literally, a missing. And it's the same with when um, learning disabled people are often put and segregated or people with mental health problems are segregated. We're, we're not together and there are some amazing people doing amazing work but it is not given that wow factor that it should. Disability arts is this untapped amazing sphere of beauty and vulgarity and humour and just, yeah, more please. I need to see me out there. Why shouldn't I see me? And do you think it's making a difference, voices like yours? Flipping Nora, I've got no clue, you know. <laughs> this amazing disabled long time people. Long since I've heard Flipping Nora. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only one I could think of that I was legitimately allowed to use. Um I stand on the shoulders, well, quite wobbly because my legs are a bit rubbish, um, of amazing disabled people who've come before me, activists and artists. And you've got to have hope, haven't you? You really have to have hope because otherwise it makes it all 
a bit pointless, but I've had beautiful, beautiful feedback from people who've said that they feel seen. That's really good. So news. that for me is enough. And if I can do that, because I wasn't seen. So if one person like me can be seen, then I've ticked a box. As for whether funders think I've ticked a box with that, I do not know. But yeah, just we just need to keep on keeping on. Have to have hope. But there's a sense of, as you're speaking, I, I feel there's a sense of gratitude, an aura of gratitude that you know it's an uphill battle. You know there are struggles with being seen, being heard. But at the same time, you're grateful for the work that you have and you're grateful for keeping going and the feedback that you're getting. And that sometimes, I mean, I say this all the time, that we just never know the impact of our words. Even if you can't see the immediate change, you don't know whose life you might have transformed by what you say. There's, there's just power, isn't there? And oh, the amount of people that I'd love to be able to say that then at that time was exactly what I needed and thank you. Just art, it's it's held me when I've needed to be held, when I've been lonely, when I've needed to laugh or cry. A couple of final questions, Lisette. Looking back at either your recent or distant past, either personally or professionally, is there one thing that you could share with us that you've regretted not having done or said, or having done or said? <laughs> I think it's probably always going to be those lost years because I was creating imagination and worlds in my head but they weren't going further or going out there and I try not to have any regrets because they eat you up and that's a regret that ate me up for a long time. I don't want to, I wasted so much time not making because I didn't think I was allowed and I don't want to spend any more time regretting that time and compounded interest upon the regret but I do I spent so long wishing for a body that was never going to come back I just wish I'd accepted this one sooner that's a massive regret and what's the one hope that you carry forward for kindness I really like kindness I like hello how are you would you like a cup of tea if we could do that a bit more then I think the world would be brimming with hope very tender note to finish on. Lisette Oton, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sins and Virtues podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, go to www.jameswilsonflutes.com or follow me on Twitter at wilsonflute. This series is supported by the Fenton Arts Trust and Help Musicians. May your day be filled with gratitude.